0: One, two, three, four. In this podcast, you will be here, Knights of Vader, Knights of Vader, includes,
1: but it's not led to talk of Star Wars, not Reagan's. We can truly prepare you for the jump that follows this song, but hey, we gave it a
0: try, So. Box or, court, they are divided for equal, sequel, hate, and love they guided. I know that we are just musicians
1: hired, and their time is up. So, here's the Knights nice of Vader. Impressive, most impressive.
0: Thank you to An Inseriority Complex for providing our theme song. This is Chris Porteous here for the Knights of Vader podcast, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, somebody who has really informed my Star Wars knowledge ever since I was following the early issues of Star Wars Insider as a little kid, and uh, that's Dan Madsen, and he was the president of the official Star Wars fan club for about 15 years, and he really made an impact on a lot of us who were waiting for that early information about the prequel trilogy and sort of following along as those movies came out. And and he was a real critical element for us fans in that period just before episode one, which personally I view as the most exciting time ever to be a Star Wars fan, the the couple years leading up to episode one. So it's a real pleasure to have you here,
1: Dan. How are you doing today? Nice to be here, Chris. Thank you. It's uh. Uh, I look forward to chatting Star Wars. I'm always always up for a good Star Wars chat. Wonderful. So
0: for those of you who might not know, Star Wars Insider Magazine started out as the Lucasfilm fan club magazine. And right. uh, especially early on, you were doing a whole lot of the... Uh, copywriting and interviews for that. I recently pulled out uh, my issue of the first issue of Insider where the name changed over. And, you know, a lot of the written content in that is you directly as as the president. There's some great interviews with Kenny Baker and a wonderful opening letter about the change of the name sort of reflecting the fact that the Star Wars engine was starting up again, and that was in 94. What can you tell me about that period? You know, I'm sure there must have been a lot going on internally where you were privy to some stuff that you couldn't roll out quite as fast as you were getting it?
1: That was probably one of the most exciting times for me being involved with Star Wars because I I, I started the club, uh, relaunched the club, I should say, in um, 87. And for so long, we had been hearing rumors of, well, George might get back to Star Wars. Oh, maybe, you know, in a few years, maybe in another few years. And it just kind of kept going and going like that. So it got to a point where some of the people I think were even thinking, well, he's never going to do Star Wars again. It's just, you know, it's just a a hopeful wish that, that maybe he might do it. So when the time came that I got word that the actual prequels were going to be begun and that meant into the script writing story breakdown, all of that, you know, and it was before it officially got announced. So it was, it was, I was so excited to know that these were in the, in the works but um I couldn't say anything and I couldn't print anything in the magazine cuz they wanted it to come out you know appropriately when they officially announced it so it was uh anticlimactic at the when the time came when Lucasfilm actually announced it because I knew all along but the great thing about that is is that after that announcement we could start talking about it in the magazine. We could start um, maybe picking out a few people that we could interview to give updates on and such. Um, and uh, yeah, it was an exciting time to be a, a Star Wars fan during that period where they announced the prequels were actually gonna be happening. And, uh, and like you, Chris, I really think that, that that time period, those late 90s, moving up to 1999 and, and episode one's and um, um, opening, I really think that was the best time ever to be a Star Wars fan because the excitement of having this comeback, everybody had been waiting so long. We knew a new movie was going into production soon. And, uh, you know, you could just feel the excitement and the buzz about Star Wars at that point. You could feel the the engine starting to start back up again, you know, and uh, we were really kind of at, at ground zero because... We were the ones that everyone was, the Lucasfilm was sending the fans to. Um, We were the ones that was gonna be putting out the information about what was starting to come forward with the prequels. Um, And, you know, I I still look at even the time period up to Force Awakens, um, that was exciting, but it wasn't anywhere near as exciting as the few years up to 1999 and the first prequel. The buzz, the excitement, the anticipation—I um, never seen anything like it, and I don't think we'll see anything like it again in the Star Wars universe. I think that was unique. That was a time and a place that happened, and that won't ever come again. Um, there'll always be excitement when something new is coming down the pike for Star Wars, but for that time period, that had to be the peak of it, and I—I I, I think uh, you know I'm. I feel privileged that not only was i alive during that time but we were you know at star wars ground zero getting to work with it and and promote it and, and talk with the fans and uh, yeah it was an exciting time
0: well uh i'm glad to hear you say that and i think what we really need to impress upon our listeners here is if for those of you who are, who are not super familiar with dan when he says he was at ground Zero he quite literally means that he probably sat down with George Lucas in his office and had an interview session wherein Lucas gave him some new details about the fact that he had started working on episode one. Like that's quite literally what we're talking about, right, Dan?
1: That is correct. And, and Rick McCallum as well, who was his right-hand man on the producing on the film. So yes, the two of them and, um, you know, getting to go out to Skywalker ranch and, and, and view, some of the, um, the original storyboards and art that they were working on um, and seeing the first trailer before it ever came out in the theaters. Um, it just is, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard to, uh, to keep my mouth shut but I had to do it. It was uh, part of the Star Wars team. So it, it was an exciting time.
0: Absolutely, that first episode one trailer is just like a, a historic moment in terms of just trailer history. I was probably eight at the time, but I I remember being at camp or something, and my parents actually taped that trailer premiere off the news for me on VHS for me to watch when I got <laughs> home, and <laughs> and you see those uh the the cadus coming through the mist of the Gungan yep. army and you were just so you had no idea what was in store for you. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't, personally, I'm a, a big fan of the prequels, but nothing, I don't think anything could have lived up to that trailer at the time, yeah. but uh it, it was just, you, you, you were so full of anticipation, seeing that thing that, that uh, it was just electric.
1: I know of no other film or any other project that had people standing in line to go see a different movie just so they could see the trailer and then they would be done with that and they'd leave (laughs) because they didn't want that. All they wanted was to see the Star Wars trailer and then get back in line for the next showing of whatever movie it was so they could see the trailer again.
0: I'm pretty sure the big one was Meet Joe Black, which is like, that's if I'm right. not mistaken, it's a weird uh, Brad Pitt movie or something, which I think we've talked about on this show before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, that's a that's quite a phenomenon that you won't ever recapture again, just because the media landscape has changed so much that that trailer's on YouTube the moment it comes out and you're not having to. Download it with DSL, like one frame at a time, or anything like that. So,
1: yeah, it was yeah. a whole different time and place. It really yeah. was.
0: And really, not that long ago, it just shows you how insane the evolution of media has been over the last 25 years.
1: Man, no kidding.
0: Yeah, uh, so something interest that are, that would really interest our listeners is that, you know, you did a ton of interviews for Insider. If you had to guess, how many times did you actually sit down with Lucas himself and, and do an interview for the magazine or the fan club?
1: Oh my gosh, I probably maybe six times that I I sat down with George and I'd always fly out to Skywalker Ranch and, um, and go up to his office there in the main house, and sit down and chat with him. And uh, yeah, I would say I would say about six times I interviewed George, and uh, it was always always such a fun, nerve wracking opportunity to go meet with George because you know I'm I was a professional editor, publisher, writer, but at the same time I was a huge Star Wars fan. So you know it's hard not to geek out. When you're sitting there at skywalker ranch in his office talking to the man who created star wars um so yeah it uh, it uh and he always treated me with great respect and sometimes when i was at the ranch i'd be walking down a hallway and all of a sudden who who comes around the corner but george and i'd always say hi george you know and he'd say hi how are you what are you doing here and i'd be like well you know i'm working on doing a licensing deal on this or that or something and um but yeah he was always uh, always such a, a wonderful person to um, to talk with. And he always gave me all the time I wanted. He never cut me short on anything.
0: It's so hard to imagine what that must have been like. I, I want to just hone in on, and I'm sure, I'm sure you remember stuff like this, but the, the first time you met George Lucas, paint a picture for us. What's the situation? What's going on?
1: Well, the first time I met George was for the first interview for the Fan Club magazine. It was back, during the time uh, that Willow was coming out. Um, and so majority of the interview with him was was talking about Willow, but then also about Star Wars past, but Star Wars present. Um, and then uh, Lynn Hale, uh, absolutely amazing head of PR for Lucasfilm, who's been there, I think, 35 years and is is now retiring this year. Um, she met me at the ranch and, uh, and then it was she and I that would go up to George's office. And um, I remember as I walked into his office, it was rather large. Um, and um, over in the corner, he was kind of over in the corner at a desk with a little kind of a, a little Victorian green lamp lit there and he was working on something. And um, he, he had asked Lynn to come over and ask, talk about something. So Lynn said, just go out and stand on the, I could go outside and stand on the deck there on the little patio out in the front of the house. And um, and then she'd let me know when he was available ready. And, took maybe five minutes and she called me in and you know I went in and uh we had a great introduction he said he really liked what I was doing with the fan club and we shook hands and uh uh he sat down in a big cushy couch and I sat down in a big cushy chair and uh with a window right behind me and um I got my recorder out and I popped it on and said are you ready George and he said I'm ready and then we we did the interview and Lynn sat there on the couch with George the whole time. Um, you know, so that she could, uh, monitor what, what was being said. She didn't want him to reveal too much at the, at that point that could go out and, uh, and spoil things. So, uh, she was always kind of the final say, so what, what I could actually print from the interviews, but, um, most, most everything was fine. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was the very first time I met George. And, um, and I'm not gonna lie. I had, uh, you know, my heart in my throat. It was a, it was a nerve-wracking moment because here was the first time I was getting the opportunity to meet what you know is based essentially, you know, a, a, an icon, a legend of our time. And um, think of how the world might have changed to be different if George hadn't lived. I mean, you know, I all the relationships and and uh, things that George has done, jobs and. Um, you know, people are alive today because their parents met through Star Wars, and I just can't imagine, you know, how much different things might have been had George Lucas not not been born. And I kind of I kind of look at it in the same vein as Walt Disney. You know, it's uh, which which kind of to me is why Disney buying Lucasfilm was the only most logical choice that that, that could happen. So, um, yeah, it was a and you know, it was wonderful too because George in his office, and it was the first time I got to see his office, which is beautiful. Um, it's all kind of a, a Victorian decor, mahogany um, walls all around. And he had, you know, original Maxfield Parish paintings on the wall and uh, um, Norman Rockwell paintings. And, and as you walked up steps to go upstairs into his office, there was a glass display case there. And they had um, in there all kinds of little animation props from ILM of you know, um, uh, speeder bikes. And I remember seeing, uh, uh, Indy's dad's, uh, grail Bible in there sitting in the glass case. And so uh, it was, a, uh, it was, uh, I kind of had to pinch myself that day.
0: That is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I think, um, it, we do talk a lot about how, you know, you really can't replicate those times, but, uh, there, there's, there's really something to that whole sort of build up and during the prequel era that is, I think, is in the long term gonna be reviewed, looked back on as completely unique in sort of cinematic history, just in the sense of the amount of money and being spent on those three films and the fact that at the end of the day, his opinion was the only opinion that mattered. <laughs> you know, yeah. they'll, they'll, I don't think there's anything that quite replicates that especially these days and sort of there's just like obviously you won't ever get that with star wars again and people currently involved will tell you as much just because there's just there's more there's more cooks in the kitchen there's more people who have to make sure that certain bases are covered right so did you ever get a sense uh, like during that period like did it did it, was everyone were people involved aware that this was like a particularly unique uh, time during these productions in terms of like that that angle on it, in terms of the scope of them and the fact that it was really just a wild artist like uh, doing whatever he felt like. And I and there's lots of reports that people said, maybe you shouldn't do this or that or have a little boy as the lead characters, things like that. Like, was this
1: discussions you were hearing at the time? Absolutely, absolutely. It was a wild time. And uh, I remember when I went out to the ranch one time and I met Rick McCallum and he was uh, gonna take me up to the, um, to the room where all of the artists were working. Um, and it's kind of a top, kind of almost an attic room in the main house. And I remember walking up there and um, we had to put a, give a special knock to get in the door. And we went in the door and there, it was almost like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I walk in there and there's bus and maquettes of all the different characters they were developing and designing, there was, uh, was the first time I got to meet Doug Chang. He was over over in the, in this area um, doing illustration, um, uh, as well as all the other artists that that had been working for Star Wars Episode One. So it, it was like uh, literally like walking into Willy Wonka's magic world up there because. Uh, There was all these things that I could look at and see. And I could talk to Doug and said, well, what are you drawing here? What is, what are you illustrating? You know? Um, And um, I I remember seeing a big maquette of uh, Jar Jar Binks head. And um, um, that was the first time I'd ever seen Jar Jar. Nobody had ever seen Jar Jar yet. So I remember thinking, wow, that's an unusual looking character. Um, And then Rick sat down, we looked at the computer and he gave me some, early views of some of the early, uh, effect shots they were working on. Um, and you know, before it was all over, Rick said, of course, now you can't say anything about this, nor can you print anything in the May." I was like, I understand. I understand. He said, we just want you to have an idea of what's happening, what's going on. So it gives you a good feel of what's coming down the pike. And, uh, that was really great of them. And they obviously trusted me that I would, I would not spill the beans and I didn't. And, um, you know, it was awfully hard to keep my enthusiasm down on that, but uh, yeah, it was um, that. Uh, I I don't know, and everybody knew it was special. What they were doing at that time, everybody knew that it was. Uh, they were working on a very special project. Many of them were had been Star Wars fans, um, and they all knew how many people were looking uh, and waiting for this to happen. And they they understood that what they were doing was not just another movie, but this was um, another moment in what could be, you know, entertainment history. So I think they all were very aware that we need to do our best work because this will be remembered down, down through history. Uh, You know, this isn't just another movie that gets made, goes to video and boom, it's done.
0: Well, you know, there's not a lot of films that have other films made about people going to see that film, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So, you know, uh, and it, it's really just surreal to imagine you seeing those early design sketches and and talking to Doug Chang while he and he explains some of what you're looking at there at the ranch. Doug Chang is it's um, it's so great that the current Lucasfilm has has him there as an integral part. I think he's VP and creative director right now which is just wild to see right he he really sort of filled that conceptual artist role that that Ralph McQuarrie would have done on the original trilogy and gave us those designs that you'll just never forget as long as you live like the Naboo Starfighter and I think he even had a hand in the lovely Razor Crest from the Mandalorian as well which is just you know it's just another one of those ships that you could just see the silhouette of it and you know right away what you're looking at.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's interesting. No, you said Naboo starfighter. That's what he was sketching and illustrating. When I went up into that uh, Willy Wonka room uh, to see the magic that was being done, that was what he had on his, on his drawing board and was sketching it out and drawing.
0: You know, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to imagine that stuff. I mean, I remember as a, as a consumer of the, uh, the, what was still kenner at the time the toys that were coming out i got this preview battle droid staff that of course we had none of us had any clue what it was but it looked awesome and we uh, <laughs> we we enjoyed getting it we had no clue what the battle droids were or anything like that but i think yeah. that came out in 98 and without any context whatsoever <laughs> so oh yeah it,
1: yeah no, I know rem- i remember that actually
0: you had to be there, you had to be engaged in the content at the time. Unfortunately, you know, I, as as privileged as I was as as a little kid, I did get a lot of this stuff. I was never actually a fan club member, but I, I do remember seeing that little badge on the figures and being sort of envious of what that content was, but I was lucky lucky enough to get the odd issue of Insider and sort of catch up with what you guys were doing. And um, I, I feel like the the media we got in between the films and sort of before episode one at that time, especially the Dark Horse comics, really solidified my engagement with the original trilogy and the star Wars content in general, just because it was so like, that was like what I, that was like the, the heavy metal era of star Wars, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. like dark empire. And like, you would just get these like, and they were even doing kids books that were sort of like goosebumps with the uh, galaxy of fear. And like, there was just a lot of just cool sort of edgy stuff at that time that I really fell in love with. And like the tops magazines, the, Star Wars uh, Star Wars Galaxy and galaxy. Star Wars, Yeah, like that stuff was great just seeing all that original art that was being that original licensed art that was being cranked out. Uh, and of course that card set is just ridiculous art-wise. If you if no one's ever looked at it, the Star Wars Galaxy cards are just you really see when the the Star Wars machine started getting cranked up again and they gave put some money to some artists to just explore their imagination in that galaxy, we started to see some really crazy stuff and it it was an awesome Time to be a fan. Yeah, yeah, and
1: an artist too. You know, I mean, um, I I think, if my memory serves me, you know, um, Shadows of the Empire, Shizor. I think we got the exclusive first look at what he, the artwork of what Shizor looked like. Can we push, put it on the cover of one of the early, early issues of Star Wars Insider? Um, and I think we got the first look at him so that fans could see this new character that was in the book. You know, the whole Shadows of the
0: Empire thing was this this crazy cross media event that was that that I mean, you know, if you were there, you were there. You, if you played the game and were traumatized by how difficult it was to defeat IG-88, <laughs> you just you had to be there, you know. But uh, but it was one of those things where there was tie in figures, the game, the novel, comics, and it, it, it really just. I feel like the because there wasn't the expectation of a film the the narrative of those pieces just went off into a lot of wild and crazy directions that I don't think we I don't it I you know I I hate to like harp on the fact that it's not like the good old days but I feel like there was sort of an there was sort of an edginess to that to that novel especially that is probably not something you'd you'd see today and I don't know if that was just because the writers how we're on a little bit of a longer leash with Lucas in charge than they are now, and I mean, I, I think that's they were,
1: you, they, they were. That's an accurate statement,
0: yeah. I feel like uh, you, you, no one involved now would even argue otherwise, probably just because there's just so many interests now, and um, everything is just sort of combed so finely to make sure that there's nothing sort of problematic per se. But, um, but were you? really engaging in that media or did you just because of your role like with the novels and comics or because of your role where you just sort of you were aware of the titles but you 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 just found yourself too busy to sort of stay involved in that level of the storytelling
1: about that time is when the fan club started to explode and we started getting a, a, a amazing number of new subscriptions and members um And the magazine that we were producing had become um, slick enough that we were able to put it on newsstands so that people could find it at uh, a Barnes and Noble bookstore or in the grocery store or the comic book shops. Um, And so, um, yeah, it started growing so fast at that point um, and that I started having to hire people to help us help me do things. I could no longer run the business, handle all the merchandising because we had You know, uh, a big deal was the Jawa Trader that was inserted in every issue of the Star Wars Insider. And we sold every single licensed product that Lucasfilm had for Star Wars. And then they gave us um, something very rare at that time was the opportunity to do exclusive things, our own products that we wanted to do just for fan club members. Um, and that that was something that I remember we had to really fight for. And we did, we finally got it. Um, but, and so I had a editor, John Snyder came on board who was the editor of uh, the Star Wars Insider after me. And um, he would come to me and we'd sit down and talk about everything. Um, and I, I, did, I did follow all of, obviously I followed everything that was going on, but I, I just didn't have the time to go in and read all the books and play the video games extensively, um, so uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't as um, it wasn't as intimate with that at that point because uh, I had turned the editorship over to a, my my editor, and um, I was more in the role of of publisher, managing the business, uh, deciding what was going to go in each issue, what was going, what products we were going to offer, what exclusive things we came up with. Brainstorming sessions. We had actually do, Chris, and I don't know that I've ever said this before, but we had focus groups. We literally would would um, look at who we had. We were based here, where I am now in Denver, Colorado. Look at who we had that were members in the Star Wars fan in the Lucasfilm Star Wars fan club uh, here in the Denver metro area, and we'd pick out certain ones and we'd send them an invitation to come. Sit down for one evening in our big conference room here, um, and we'd provide dinner, and we would we would question them on what they liked, what they wanted to see as far as products go, what they wanted to see in the magazine, uh, what they didn't like, um, and so it helped us keep a, a finger on the pulse of Star Wars fandom because uh, it really was helpful to say see what they wanted and what they didn't want, and. Um, I, I think that did help us in a lot of ways. And uh, they got to feel like they were involved in something really cool and they got free dinner out of it at the same time. <laughs> so that was a fun thing. I used to always love to sit in on those and hear them talking about, you know, what hadn't been done? Nobody's done, you know, this or nobody's done something like this or, you know, and so, um, and then we'd make a whole list up of all the, the wish list of what these fans said they would love to see. And we would send that out to Lucasfilm, um, the licensing, and say, here's some ideas. What do you think? Can we do some of these? Um, And so some of them, they gave us the ability to do exclusively. And others, they said, well, we got to protect that with Hasbro because that's something more that they're going to want to do. So we can't let you guys do that. That's something that Hasbro is already talking about. Just to
0: jog people's memory, let's see. What are some of the most famous fan club exclusives? If I'm not mistaken, there's a Yoda lamp that's quite coveted.
1: Yep. Actually, uh, the the statue, you know, the Yoda statue that was done by by Lawrence Noble. That's out front of Lucasfilm right now. We had the very first version of that done by Lawrence. It was a small, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 inch. It was the exact same sculpt of Yoda. Just as he is in the in the statue in front of Lucasum now, and um, uh, we we created a, a limited edition uh, number of those. Bron- they were bronze on a wooden um, platform um, statues, and signed and numbered by Larry uh, Lawrence Noble, I should say. And um, you know, we created I don't remember how many of those we did, but not many because they were expensive. Um, but today. In fact, I was just talking to someone about it. I mean, you'll find if I mean, if you can even find one, which they're almost impossible to find, because collectors that do have them are not going to give them up. Um, they'll they go for anywhere between five and ten thousand dollars now.
0: Yeah, which is precisely why I uh, wasn't sure if it was a lamp or a statue because it's you know it's just it's virtually unattainable. And I just had a quick look if any are currently on eBay, and I'm I'm seeing nothing. So yeah. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if it is, it would be rare because yeah. there was so few of them made that um, the collectors who do have them uh, unless they've hit upon really hard times I can't imagine them wanting to give up that piece exactly Steve, so Steve has Steve sandsweet has one in the in his uh, museum
0: yeah I mean of, yeah of course uh, of course mister sandsweet Sanuite's got one of those and uh, y- you know um, intellectually I sort of place you in that sort of pantheon of of, uh, you know, you really held the torch for the community alongside guys like uh, uh, Craig Miller and, and, and oh, yeah. Steve Sansweet. And you can listen to you, you guys talk for, uh, for uh, 10 minutes and you know that you're getting uh, it, it just the authenticity is palpable. And this is something that the, the fans really value. And of course, I knew that before I tried to reach out to you to see if you'd chat today, and I knew, I knew it would be great and has been so far. So give me your take on the sort of importance of having that sort of role of the sort of fan ambassador. And, and do you think um, do you think it's something that's challenging for, for Lucasfilm to do in its current iteration? Is it, wh- why do you think we've lost that sort of tradition?
1: Yeah, well, it, it was important then because there wasn't, um, the internet was not as widely available as it is today. Um, during my tenure. And it, um, they, they, you know, there was kind of, I've heard fans describe it as the dark times because, you know, it was after Jedi and before the prequels. And, you know, it, it, they called it the dark time. And so, you know, we were kind of one of the only sources that, you know, we were direct from Lucasfilm and we would have, you know, updates with Rick McCallum on the prequels and we'd show some of the early images and, We had new product that we would be coming out. So you didn't have to go to the store. Every issue you'd get the Jawa trader and you could see what new products were available at that point. You could order them directly from us. Um, But, you know, yeah, it was a um, a different time then. And I don't think today it would work as well because you have the internet now and it's everything. The minute something's out, boom, it's crossed the whole world in, in seconds. Everybody's got it. Everybody's seen it. Um, and there's just so much out there now. And you know it's funny because when we were doing the fan club, it, it was so few and far between that we'd get the movies that the, the, the appetite, the anticipation was just palpable. I mean, the fans were just lit, just rabid. They wanted something and they were, they'd eat it up in a heartbeat. And it's kind of funny because as much as I, I, I'm, I love the fact that there's so much Star Wars coming out now, you know, especially on TV, um, on Disney Plus and such, but there's something lost a little bit in having that space of time to give people time to digest the last thing that came out and to be building that anticipation, building that excitement, you know, because you don't get it all the time. So it's really, really special. But now, you know, there's just, you can go over here and watch this, you go over here and watch this, go over here and watch this, this is coming out here. It's just, it's, um, you know, I, I suppose there are some people who would say, well, that's a great thing because we just got so much Star Wars now that, you know, we're, we're in love. And then I see their point. But I also say, I think that interim period between films was um, pretty important. And the anticipation and excitement was... Uh, Something that was kind of fun, and it's gone now.
0: Well, you know, you're definitely right that there is. Um, I think it's. I feel like it's a more recent phenomenon. I remember, like, like er, during the prequel era, th- there was, of course, the the big divide between people who are saying that Lucas was messing the whole thing up, and the original trilogies where it's at, and and, right. and and now it's sort of a little different. Uh, like, especially on social media, I get I get the sense that there's this there's basically two camps like generally it's the one like you said where oh it's so great that we're getting all the star wars content any star wars is better than no star wars and then you have the side that's a little more critical of things from a narrative standpoint let's say and i think the big part of that divide comes because if you're say a podcast that is very critical of the, the of stuff that disney is doing you won't get interviews you won't get this or that you won't get early review copies of books things like that so so if you they're on some level there people I feel like there's a community that's sort of encouraging people to just love everything and yeah. i i i do worry that people that sort of contributes to and maybe you love the marvel cinematic universe but it sort of contributes to this problem where it's just you just get bombarded with content that's sort of good enough to maintain your attention for the time you're watching the movie but the average Marvel Cinematic Universe film, for example, I could barely distinguish them in my mind retro- retrospectively. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. I just, I don't want Star Wars to become that. And I worry that when you sort of lose that that core galactic importance of the narrative, when you have time for stuff like filler episodes where the Mandalorian gets trapped in a cave for half an hour, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. St- like as entertaining as it is, it's sort of, it's sort of besides the point to the core narrative of the story right and I feel like well, obviously when you have one movie every three years and then a gap for 10 or 15 years you just don't have time for that kind of storytelling right so is there a way to sort of be a sort of positive force in the fan community while also sort of keeping in mind that these are films made by people and it's not uh it's not the, the, the word of the creator anymore per se
1: well I, I think First off, just to go back to what you were previously saying, it's almost like I compare it to having your favorite food. You love this, whatever the dish is, it's your favorite dish. But if you keep putting it in front of you constantly, it's you're it's going to start getting old. You're going to go, oh, you know, I love it, but no more, not right now. I don't want another one right now. And that's the way it is with Star Wars, I think, and Marvel events, especially, um, is that they just keep putting it in front of you, putting it in front of you, putting it in front of you, and it becomes less special, and you can only. You can only love it so much, you know, for so long. On the other hand, uh, what you were just asking me, my, my take on that is that you, you you love, cause you know, I hear fans say, this came out and it, oh my gosh, I hated it. And it's ruined my whole love for Star Wars now. And I've thought, you know, what's wrong with you? you, you have, you've loved Star Wars right up to this and you didn't like this but why does that make everything you loved in the past no longer special to you? You pick out what you like. And especially now it's like, you know, if you loved, if you love this, if you love that, then rewatch that, watch that be part, be a fan of that. If you don't like these things, throw them out, don't watch them. Pretend they didn't even exist, you know, and just love what you love. And uh, so I, I, I'm the one on, on that hand, I guess I have to say, you know, you don't have to love everything that comes out. You can love what, it, what, what is special to you and ignore the other stuff. You don't have to have everything that's been ever made of Star Wars uh, be special and, and, and you have to love it. So I often have talked with people who say, oh, you know, some have said the prequels ruined it for me. Others have said they hated the sequels, you know, um, hated Han Solo being killed. You know, on and on. And it uh and I've said, well, you know, then just watch the original films where you had Han Solo. And and you don't have to you don't have to even remember that he was killed in The Force Awakens, you know. So that's my that's my attitude about it.
0: Yeah, I think in a perfect world where we're all sort of. uh healthy about our intellectual discourse we could talk about this stuff as if it is not you know out of the bible and and we can intellectualize it in a way where it's like you have you really have to just sort of look at it era by era and you could sort of separate the original trilogy and the prequels if you want or just sort of look at that as that's when lucas the the madman was in charge and it it was the way it was because that was the period you were in, and now it's a different it's a different animal. And that's uh, you, you're not a bad fan if you intellectually draw that line that it changed here because it's an ownership thing, and there are reasons why it's not exactly what it used to be. That doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just means it's understandable why it's different now.
1: Yeah, and you know there are people out there that are purists that say I only like the movies that George Lucas was was uh, specifically involved with you know, um, either as a producer or as the director. Um, and they say everything else is not from the mind of the creator or something. But, you know, in a sense, it is in some way, because I don't, I don't know how much involvement he has in any story that comes out today. Do do they run it by – do they send it over to George and say, hey, George, do you like this or not? Or, I have no idea. I, well, I don't think they do. There's too much for him now. It,
0: the, I mean, Bob Iger put out a book that pretty explicitly stated that they – did not use Lucas's idea for episode seven. So I think that debate is sort of settled at this point. And, uh, you know, I mean, personally, can I could I imagine the amount of hubris required to tell Lucas we're not going with your idea for episode seven? It's beyond my comprehension. But um, (laughs) (laughs) what that meeting must have been like, I can't imagine. I know but (laughs) but but uh you you know um so i want to be respectful of your time here and i just want to touch on a few other things real quick so you mentioned you mentioned that you're in you're in denver what uh what a lot of uh listeners might not know is that uh dan's actually sort of responsible for the very first star wars celebration which i'm sure it's no coincidence took place in denver colorado could you tell me a little bit about that
1: that was that was an amazing undertaking and uh it, uh, it, it, it it has a lot of memories, a lot of good things. Many of the, the things that the celebrations now do were we, we started there and built the foundation for in Denver back in 1999. And, um, you know, and that was, I'd also say too, that that goes in with this whole excitement, anticipation, you know, uh, anxiousness for the movies because that happened, you know, two weeks, I think it was prior. To episode one opening, so some of the very first footage that anybody ever saw on the big screen was at Celebration one, where we had the, a big moment with um, Maul and Qui Gon and Kenobi all doing their lightsaber um, battle, and um, which I still think is one of the most amazing lightsaber battles in any of the Star Wars films, TV series, you name it. Um, but um, you know, they got to see that. Um, we brought many of the prequel actors out so they got to meet them for the first time hear what their characters were like Um, and we had one of the very first opportunities to buy a lot of the different episode one action figures we literally had the hasbro store and we had the first star wars action figures from the prequels you could buy there Um, and the night of the the night that we closed celebration one was that night they were um, having the big toys r us um, sales where people could come in, it was like at midnight, I think it was, and you could come get in and get all the Star Wars Episode One stuff. And I can remember very, very vividly after Celebration One, you know, we had closed it all up and we were going to get dinner and we had to drive past the uh, uh, Toys R Us. And I mean, the line from the front door was going all the way out, packed the, at the store, all the way out into the parking lot. And I thought, wow, how amazing is that? These people are. And it was you know like ten o'clock, and they still have to wait two more hours before they could get in and get all those figures. But um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a labor of love for me and my my crew because we felt that it was a convention um, for fans made by fans. Um, unfortunately, Mother Nature didn't cooperate with us. We had a a deluge of rain through a couple of days, and we couldn't get into the massive. uh, Convention center here, it was booked already. So we had to put it into what was essentially an Air Force hangar um, to have all of the dealers' area where everybody could come inside there. And then we had to build these two huge, what I'd call circus tents for the stages. And those stages would leak occasionally because I mean, we had the worst, it literally was the worst rain we'd had in 100 years. And it happened on the weekend that celebration one happened. So many people have a bittersweet memories of that, of that convention. There was a lot of rain, a lot of mud, a lot of water, um, but a lot of them have looked at it as, you know, all the fans got together and still, you know, trudged through it and loved it. And it's kind of the uh, Star Wars Woodstock now. Uh, In fact, Rick McCallum told me that. I remember coming back into his trailer prior to him coming on stage. And I said, I remember just looking at him and saying, I cannot believe they'll cut this rain. It's just like it—it—it's it, the most rain we've ever had. He looked at me and he said, Dan, don't worry about. it. He said, This is going to be the Star Wars Woodstock. He said, People will look back on this years from now and realize that they—they they hung in there and they got through the whole first celebration through this rain and mud and and everything. I said, I hope so. I hope that's what they think. But yeah, it was a—it was an amazing thing to put together and. The fact that it actually happened, Chris, I, don't, I mean, two weeks prior to celebration, we had the, the Columbine high school shootings here in Denver. And as a result of that, Lucasfilm called me and said, I, I thought we should cancel the event. Um, and I don't know how much you want me to go into that. I've told this story on other places, but you know, we had to, Anthony Daniels had come out and he, he, uh, he stayed with me uh, for two weeks. And uh, we would meet in my office and he and I helped try to design everything on how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. And uh, we got the word one day that uh, Lucasfilm felt they should, we should cancel it. And this was two weeks before the event. And I said, my God, people have planned their whole vacations around this. They've already bought their tickets. We got, I mean, on the amount of work we've put into this, all the licensees that have got all of their stuff coming for it. I said, you know, and in and fact I said the city needs um, needs something good something to help build it up because it, it, people were just devastated by this thing and so uh, they said okay well Anthony and I talked to him and we we hoped we had convinced them they said let us talk with George we'll get back to you tomorrow and lo and behold they came back to us and said okay We talked to George and he said, all right, based on what you've told us, I also, in the meantime, got the mayor of Denver to fax them a letter saying, please don't cancel it. Please make this happen. Denver needs this shot in the arm right now. And um, so between all of that, they agreed to go ahead and let us do it. And we raised about $30,000 for the victims of the Columbine shootings. And um, it, uh, it happened. And then we had the rain on top of that. So the fact it even came about is a little bit of a miracle story
0: that's you know that's beautiful that uh, that you uh, raised that money and uh of course I of course I know this story and uh and and uh I just I, I we're here for every one of the listeners who hasn't had the luxury of hearing you tell this before and that was great um you know it's but uh Rick McCallum when he when he told you that was absolutely right because You know, I didn't have the luxury of being there. I was like eight or nine years old in Canada and there was just no chance my parents were going to play that game. But you know what? I was aware of it and I heard about and later on I heard about the rain and that it was this crazy thing. But a lot of uh, a lot of firsts happened there. Of course, before that, you have before that, you have the 10th anniversary uh, anniversary proto celebration but that's too much yep. of a deep dive i think but yep. but but uh <laughs> you know uh it's just uh it is remembered as that sort of woodstock as somebody who couldn't have even been there and um from my perspective um as the listeners probably know i'm pretty deep into the vintage star wars collecting side of thing with the early kenner stuff and 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 that sort of uh sub community the first two celebrations especially are regarded as just this crazy crazy time for like some of the the stuff that showed up for sale at those shows just like in terms of like internal prototypes and stuff that who knows all the various ways that got out of kenner at the time but there was just (laughs) crazy prototypes for sale for like shockingly low prices and it's just the stuff of legend these days that people just look back on like they can't even believe what happened yeah yeah and and and, you know, um, personally, um, I only got to go to a Star Wars celebration for the first time in Chicago, and, and I, I, it was a fabulous experience. And I was really sort of keyed into that sort of vintage collecting community side of things. And um, something that's really great that... A tradition celebration has been able to maintain, in no uh, small part, thanks to guys like uh, Gus Lopez who run it. But there's a there's a panel stage they have called the Collecting Track where they right. do all these niche panels that are sort of focused on various aspects of collecting. And in Chicago, they actually had the first ever panel at Celebration that was actually about the Star Wars Holiday Special,
1: which is oh, wow,
0: which is just wild. And <laughs> it, it, I came to realize at some point that. This was the only, uh, stage at celebration that didn't have, uh, official camera crew at it. So I actually filmed the whole collecting track in Chicago, all 20 panels. And that's up on YouTube on collecting track on YouTube.
1: Great. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, so that's all available. You could check out this crazy holiday special panel that happened, which was a lot about the props and costumes that have surfaced over the years. And, um. And, you know, it's just the fact that the fact that they still have that stage after it's sort of handed off to Disney and it's still run by the passionate community member collectors who are doing it on a volunteer basis. It's really great that they're sort of able to maintain that sort of tradition. And I hope that continues.
1: Oh, me too. Me too. I think that's some of the the most fun moments you can have at, at a celebration, in my opinion, because so many people are collectors that are there. You know, I don't very few of them are there. And they don't, want any, they don't want to buy anything. You don't want to collect anything. They're just there because they love Star Wars. Most everybody is a collector in some w- way, shape or form, you know?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you guys uh, with the fan club obviously put out a, f- a bunch of the exclusive figures that are starting to uh, become a little more popular these days. The Cantina Band members and the Bomar Monk is a couple of them.
1: Yeah. Which, and yeah. and uh, we also did uh, Ula. Ula and, and Salacious Crumb was a fan club exclusive at one year, too.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's uh, something that's actually come up very recently. I don't know how, how much you sort of stay aware of the current Hasbro stuff, but they've been doing this HasLab thing where they have this Black Series gigantic rancor they're trying to crowdfund. And it's actually, the campaign's ending a, within a day or two of us recording this. And um, the interesting thing about it is uh, the former Hasbro Star Wars design director made a comment on Instagram. He's like, if you guys are holding out for them to add a ULA figure to the package that's not doable anymore in, in today's day and age. So don't hold your breath for that sort <laughs> of thing. So basically you can't make an Ula figure anymore is what we've learned recently. But um, once again, you, uh, it, the the period that the fan club was active was a very interesting time and place where, where a lot of stuff happened that you won't see again.
1: I'm glad we got to run. I, I really am glad I got to run the fan club at that time, because to me it was a very special time to be a Star Wars fan. Um, we had, all of the, the old films, all the original films that, that people loved and what you know what made them a Star Wars fan. And then we had the excitement of coming into the new era of, of Star Wars films. It was the start of all of that. Um, and, you know, episode one, even though it had its critics and, you know, people hated Jar Jar at the moment and such, I do think that, that it's, as time goes by, it's looked upon with less um, um, hate and, and starting to realize there were some amazing things that were that were in that. And, uh, you know, the Duel of the Fates, John Williams theme as they're fighting this, the lightsaber, it's like, you know, it gives me goosebumps when I still watch that.
0: Thanks for bringing that up because I love to point out the fact all the time that how interesting is John Williams? Like musically, oh, yeah. like I'm not qualified to make this statement but I'm gonna make it anyways. But like, how interesting is it that some, like a, a a musician or a composer peaks creatively at like their mid 60s you know (laughs) like like you know it's usually 27 right but uh but uh you know if you 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 look at the prequel music and then he did harry potter the first harry potter around the same time like that was when he was just firing on all cylinders and obviously episode one is some of the best john williams you'll ever hear
1: well i I think he's coming back for indiana jones 5 as well so i think he's going to score that so that that might be his last i don't know because he's He's getting up there now. I don't know.
0: And to be fair, you know, some of uh, that's some of my favorite stuff from the sequel trilogy as well. Like Ray's theme is a fantastic oh, piece. Ray's theme is beautiful.
1: That's probably one of my favorite mo- pieces of music from from the sequels uh, is Ray's theme.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of standout stuff from the, that first film, especially Um so I know a little bit uh, that you're sort of a you're a pretty big fan of the Mandalorian stuff. What's sort of exciting you lately in terms of upcoming Star Wars projects? A lot has been announced. Some of it's been canceled shortly after being announced, but a lot yeah. of it's still going ahead. So what what's uh, what are you really looking forward to these days?
1: I've I've fallen in love with the Mandalorian. I think it's the best thing they're doing now for Star Wars. Um, it is so well done. The, the characters are so good, the acting is great, the design for the characters and the ships. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Mandalorian. I can't wait for the new season uh, when that happens. Um, as far as shows that I'm really excited about, um, the Kenobi series has got me extremely excited. Um, and uh, and uh, the whole announcement that Hayden Christensen is coming back as Anakin, and the idea of seeing a Vader-Obi-Wan duel um, lightsaber duel is really very, very cool. So that one has got me, I'm, I'm as pumped for that as I am for anything, uh, in the star Wars universe right now. So that's, that's coming. I'm also really intrigued to see what they do with the Ahsoka series. Um, and, uh, I hope, I hope that that is done, done well, um, because, uh, Ahsoka's an amazing character and, uh, I would hate to see anything happen that would, Ruin that character for anybody. So uh, those are the ones that I'm most most excited about. To be honest, um, I'm more of a live action fan than an animation fan. So uh, you know, I, I I love the Clone Wars series. I still think that's that's the best of any animation they've done. Um, and uh, of course, I I worked for a long time for eleven years. I worked directly with Ashley Eckstein um, doing PR and marketing for her her universe, um, a line of clothing. And so I, I became, I got to know Ashley very, very well. And um, it was amazing to uh, see how the character of Ahsoka took off with Ashley promoting it and being involved with it and such. So that was wonderful. But yeah, I would have to say uh, the, uh, the Kenobi series and, uh, and the Mandalorian new season and the Ahsoka series, those are all the ones that I'm most anticipating.
0: Well, it's uh, it's great to hear that uh, you're still getting excited about the same stuff that that most of us are, and uh, we're rounding up on an hour here. There's just uh, you know, there's just one um, one other thing I wanted to bring up just before we let you go that uh, that just because none of the other hosts could make it because we we're recording a little earlier and. Uh, I that because of that I can derail the conversation in any direction I'd like. So, <laughs> so you uh so you were also uh you might say responsible for an uh an early incarnation of the Star Trek fan club as well. M- much like you, you know, I'm a, a why not both kind of guy, and they're completely different uh, fandoms. And uh, I really um. I appreciate both of them in their own right. But um so like are you what is like when you're when you're starting a st- the Star Trek fan club are you really responsible for this sort of archetype of the the science fiction collecting convention going uh, stereotype that we all understand these days like you, <laughs> like like are you really the core of that idea where the the standard convention attending nerd that most of us identify as is this where this really came from?
1: I think there's some some truth to that. I don't know that I'm solely responsible for that. But I, yeah, definitely. You know, I started the Star Trek Club when I was a, a teenager. Uh, I, my senior year in high school, after the motion picture came out and fell in love with that. And and I'd always loved Star Trek prior to that, the original series. And so um launched that. And it wasn't until about two years after I launched it that Paramount Studios saw what I was doing and made me realize i wasn't doing it with a license so they flew me out to paramount and had meetings and i'd already become good friends with gene roddenberry the creator start that point so he put a good word in for me and said uh, you know this is the guy we want to have do this so uh, he um they they said okay well we'll give you a license and uh, you're the first one to ever get a license because there had been other star trek fan clubs obviously trekkies you know the whole idea of them meeting in their clubs and stuff and sets but then there'd never been an official one um and so i got to do the first official and and to be honest chris the it was because of the work i had done with star trek that george and the others in licensing at lucasfilm um decided to maybe give me the opportunity to do the star wars fan club because up to the point when i had it it had all been done in-house and they had finally closed it down after Jedi came out because n- nobody felt like there's going to ever be any new star Wars. So there's like a year cl- cancellation where there was nothing. And then they saw what I was doing with star Trek and I responded positively back to them and, um, and got star Wars. So star Trek had a lot to do with, with that. Um, with me doing the star Wars fan club, uh, it was built on the, you know, what I had done with star Trek that I was able to do that. So yeah, it's, uh, and so it was one of the few times, I think, where, you know, these two worlds came together because our offices um, were Star Wars Central and Star Trek Central. And if you're a fan of either one, you'd come to our offices. We had a store and you could find Star Trek on one side and Star Wars on the other. And you'd go into our warehouse that looked like something from Indiana Jones, the final scene. It was just rows and rows of going down to our our, um, our warehouse and on each Shelf was, you know, Star Wars bathrobes and Star Wars masks and Hasbro action figures. And then over here were Star Trek mugs and Star Trek model kits. And yeah, it was kind of an amazing. Uh, it was an amazing time. I I love Star Trek and I love Star Wars equally. My favorites are though the originals of both. I still because I grew up with them. They influenced me. The original Star Trek series and the original Star Wars films for me hold a special place.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it, it just it, it's just I don't think anything can sort of impress upon our listeners how different and smaller of a world it was. You started making a Star Trek fanzine and you got a call from Paramount, basically, and you're talking to Gene Roddenberry and not, yeah. not, not long after that. You just can't write this stuff. This is just wild, you know. <laughs> I don't like, know that
1: I could have done it today in the in the world we live in today. It was it was a time and place that's gone, you know. It came and it was there and then it was gone.
0: Well, you were definitely the the right guy at the right time, and uh, we oh. and I encourage everybody. This is how you this is you, how you know that Dan was a real special uh, force to both of these fan communities. If you Google Dan, the first two results are his page on memory alpha which is the star trek wiki and right under that is his page on Wikipedia. So though that's as much street cred as you could possibly ever have that's the first two, <laughs> two results for him is the, the the wikis for star trek and star wars so um you know i i i, I want to be respectful of your time here we'll uh we'll let you go um but this has been great i really appreciate uh all the time you've given me and there's some fantastic stories there um is there anything uh you want to you want to plug before you go i know i caught up with you on instagram and i was like is this actually dan madsen he's posting stuff and he's engaging with people i need to see if you'll be interested in doing interviews so where can people find you
1: well they can find me on facebook um i'm 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 there i'm on twitter as the dan Matson. i'm on instagram as Matson eight nine seven three and i'm always posting interesting stuff from um uh, star wars and star trek and the past <clears throat> things from the past so Um, that's where they can find me. And uh, I'm basically today, I'm doing a lot of PR marketing work for a variety of different companies. And uh, so it's, uh, I'm happy and doing well. And uh, I still am involved have my finger in the Star Wars and Star Trek world.
0: That's great. I encourage everybody to go follow Dan on those platforms. There's always something interesting going on in those feeds. So please do check them out. And once again, thank you so much for your time, Dan. This was
1: wonderful. Chris, thank you. I really enjoyed it.